Good afternoon and thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday. We are starting the show talking about privacy and more specifically facial identification technology and how some Canadian tire stores used that technology. A new report was released just a short time ago put out by BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner and that Commissioner Michael McAvoy is joining us right now to talk more about this report and the recommendations. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, good afternoon, Jill. Uh, I want to get to what you found in the recommendations, but uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of the scope of what you were looking at? I know uh, there were 12 stores, I think, in total of Canadian Tire stores that were using this technology. Your report looks at how four of the stores were doing this. So what was the scope of what you were looking into? So we received a complaint uh, from a customer of a Canadian tire store, and we also had media reports of its use uh, by by the retailer, which caused us to look into things. Um, and we actually wanted to see what the scope of the use of facial recognition technology was in the retail sector generally. We surveyed 13 uh, of the largest retailers throughout BC and determined that Canadian Tire and these 12 stores that we identified uh, were the only ones that... Uh, that we're using it. And so we wanted to just take a deeper dive and see what happened. I should say right off the bat to Canadian Tire's credit, um, they, when we began our investigation, they, they immediately backed off and began to dissemble the systems. All right. And I understand, too, from looking at your report, that this was something, this wasn't something that, say, came from corporate, that you must install this technology in your stores, that it was actually up to the discretion of the store managers? Yeah, that's right. And I think what had happened in this case is that uh, uh, vendors of these uh, uh, FRT systems, uh, they seem like a sort of a silver bullet solution to issues that all, all retailers face, really. And these are challenges with you know shoplifting and fraud. And uh, these uh, vendors kind of offered up a silver bullet system that would uh, would assist them. And it turns out that something that seems to be perhaps a little too... Uh, uh, too amazing in fact is uh, too amazing and and it really didn't at the end of the day really assist them on the other hand these systems collected an awful lot of very sensitive information about the thousands of patrons that uh, that come to canadian tire stores uh, every day through basically collect, collecting what is in effect a face print Right. And and where did that go? And from what I read about this, the idea, like you said, it was to deal with shoplifting or perhaps people that had caused issues in the stores, that if they came back into the store and they were flagged as as that person, they could be or would be escorted out. But where did all of the information go? Well, it was stored on a database uh, kept by these companies that this Canadian Tire used. And uh, again, to Canadian Tire's credit, uh, when we began the investigation and began to look at exactly the question that you've raised about how the data was collected, how people's facial images were collected, how they were stored, uh, those uh, images, that database was uh, destroyed uh, safely. And uh, so that's the good news part of the story. The Canadian Tire backed away uh, from using the technology in the way that it did. All right, but you also found that they didn't actually meet the threshold or they, they actually broke the privacy rules, didn't they? That's exactly right. So uh, on two bases. One is, if particularly if uh, you're a retailer wanting to collect very sensitive information, and that is certainly the case here, from your customers, you have to notify them and customers have to give consent to doing that. And in this case, the stores in question didn't get the proper consent from their customers about it. 
But above and beyond even the consent issues, there's a question of, and our legislation provides to ensure that when collection happens, that it, it be reasonable. And in the circumstances of this case, when we looked at, you know, its uh, efficacy, like did it add value to what Canadian Tire was doing? Uh, the answer was no. On the other side of the equation, was it collecting a lot of sensitive information about individuals? The answer, yes. So really, in, in many ways, and legally speaking, a really disproportionate response uh, to the challenges that were faced by the stores. Would it be different if the stores that use this had put signage, say, on the front doors or in very obvious places that said, by entering this store, you you are going to be scanned by facial recognition technology? What we found in this case is no. Uh, even if they had received the consent of individuals, uh, that still the deployment of this technology was not reasonable in the circumstances, uh, given all the factors to say, considering the efficaciousness of the of the technology and given the disproportionate collection of people's very uh, personal information in this case it's effectively a face print it's the every human being has this unique uh, facial characteristic and you know when you think about the data that's collected and if it were to become hacked or stolen it's not like a password you know a password you can change Uh, obviously the facial features that you have can't be changed so If that kind of uh, information gets into the wild, it can become uh, the subject of identity theft and all kinds of things uh, that create real challenges. So when you collect this kind of information, really the the level of uh, security that you need to put in place, the test for which you can use it, I think the things get uh, uh, raised, the stakes get raised considerably. So it's... it, It would take a very compelling case, I think, for retailers to be using this kinds of kind of technology. Right. And you even start your message in the report saying, imagine going into your favorite store and you're asked to put your fingers on a black ink pad and to have your fingerprints taken. And I think anybody would would say, well, absolutely not. I'm not going to get fingerprinted to go into a retail store. But that's effectively what this is, only the face print. That's right. Now, the the technology is a little, uh, you know, not, it's a little more frictionless in a sense. And that's part of the problem because it's so surreptitious. It's doing the same thing as putting your finger on an ink pad and taking a, a fingerprint, which is you say, the average consumer would simply say, I'm taking my business elsewhere. But that in effect is what is happening here. Uh, a video camera is watching people coming in the stores. It's making a template of each and every face. It's comparing it to a database of people that in many cases, actually, uh, they may be in a a suspect database, but have done nothing wrong, or they could be misidentified. And this does happen. And it's particularly problematic for for minorities and people of color where misidentification using this technology happens all too often. Do you get the sense that other stores have been using this or or was it uh, limited to Canadian Tire? Uh, in our survey, it appeared to be only these Canadian tire stores. And, and that is a very good question because uh, these kinds of things can creep up on all of us. Uh, we wanted to have a larger look at the brick and mortar uh, real, uh, retailer establishment in British Columbia. Uh, we surveyed 13 of the largest and all came back negative with the exception of these stores. So uh, it's, I think it's, it's a good teachable moment. Uh, for for retailers uh, in terms of the use of this technology and and whether that's something they would actually want to do. What we recommend here is 
is that, and we've said this to Canadian Tire, you really need to have a very effective, robust privacy management program in place. Because I think this would have probably short-circuited a lot of this in the first instance. Because when you begin to look at all of these challenging questions around, uh, you know, the trust that your customers want to have in you and so forth, uh, that, that I think they would have gone down another path. And so I think organizations can save themselves a lot of time and trouble if they do that kind of analysis and that study right up front. Right. So that was uh, your recommendation as far as uh, having that privacy management program. Uh, you also made recommendations uh, to the B.C. government. What are those? Well, a couple of recommendations. The first is if uh, people who install right now CCTV cameras, which is kind of a more elementary kind of technology, they need to be properly licensed and uh, their security provisions around them. All of that needs to be registered. Ironically, if you're installing this even more sensitive information, these FRT cameras, there's no requirement to be licensed. There's no requirement for security checks. So we're saying to the government, uh, you need to amend the Security Services Act to, to make sure that these kind of folks who are, who are uh, you know, acting as vendors of this kind of technology be registered. The second thing is that our privacy legislation should be amended to have a provision like in the province of Quebec, which requires retailers who, and just any organization that wants to use biometrics, whether it's FRT or all kinds of things that can study your gait or look at your, the irises in your eyes, that the uh, privacy commissioner be notified uh, so that uh, steps can be taken to ensure that these, in fact, uh, uh, changes or proposals that are being made are privacy protective and, in fact, are, are legal. Those are the kind of steps uh, we think would be important and would further uh, protect British Columbians and really uh, provide trust that citizens have in organizations and government. All right. Well, it's a very interesting report and recommendations. We'll leave it there for today. But Michael McAvoy, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you, Joe. Well, when it comes to fees, I'm guessing everybody would be on board with maybe paying less. That is what Metro Vancouver's board of directors is looking at, approving a motion that will should lead to reworking the budget and, in fact, lowering the rising tax burden for the almost 3 million people who live in this region. Joining us now to talk more about what this is going to look like is George Harvey, chair of Metro Vancouver's board of directors, also the mayor of Delta. Thank Thank you so much for taking some time today. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I think this will come as good news to just about everybody in Metro Vancouver. But what does this actually look like as far as reworking the budget and trying to lower that tax burden? Well, I'll start off in the last October. One of the reasons I ran for the position of board chair was I was concerned about the approval of financial five-year financial task force plan uh, that actually set uh, rates from 2024 to 2027 with a 53% ending increase. And a number of us, including myself, felt that we have to go in and look at these rates and look at how we can do things better. Uh, these are, that would affect every residential homeowner and business insofar as the utility costs. And what we've been suffering for many years over in Metro Vancouver, and I've been around a long time as the director and as city manager before that, is water and sewer did not have a development cost charge. And so basically, uh, Metro Vancouver was subsidizing new growth uh, through utility bills to the homeowner. And I found that, that unacceptable. Fortunately, uh, we've, Metro Vancouver has been trying to get a development cost charge approved to the province for many, many years. Uh, this year, it was approved. 
And we were over in Victoria a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the Premier announced that the development cost charge has been approved. So now we went in and worked with our good staff at Metro Vancouver and did a people like a forensic audit on all our projects for the next four years. And uh, the work of staff came up with a solution insofar as reducing the number of projects. Uh, as you could appreciate, right now we have projects in line and we can't cut those back. Uh, but our new targets are for 2024 from 14.3% to 12%, 2025 from 14.1% to 11%, and most importantly, 2026 from 124 to 5%, in 2027, 12.1 to 5%. So that is a 20% reduction. But that end result, a 33% increase to, at the end of 2027, is still not satisfactory to myself as chair and to other board members. So we're still going to be looking at ways we can actually reduce uh, subsidizing growth. growth. New growth should be paying for new services, not the existing taxpayer or the homeowner on their utility bills. So with that principle, we're trying to ensure that we're getting away from that. And over the next number of years, with the development cost charges in effect, uh, we're looking at uh, changing the subsidies. Right now, insofar as costs for development, uh, Metro Vancouver, through the utility taxes to Delta uh, Delta and Metro Vancouver residents, uh, we assist 50% of the cost. And for liquid waste, which is sanitary sewer, is 15%. So those are really high subsidies. And I don't know where anybody else, but uh, in Delta, when we're building, uh, say, your new house or that, you pay a development cost charge. It's the new owner of the building, the property owner, or the developer in Delta that is paying for those costs to Delta. We need the same principle applied for our regional water. We're going to be having tremendous growth over the next decade. And with the amount of immigration coming in and just new growth, especially south of the Fraser, we need additional water supplies. We need additional services. We need to extend our services. And again, we want to get away from the existing homeowners subsidizing that. So that's where we're at right now. Uh, the financial plan of yesterday was approved insofar as sending it to staff to come back to the board in October uh, with regard to writing the financial plan for the next five years with those targets in place. So I'm very pleased. Uh, I put together a financial task force to look at this. We had six meetings planned. We did this in three meetings. So I'm very, very, very pleased with the support I had from our Metro directors to look at the targets and adjust accordingly. Right. And and I know there's been kind of mixed reaction or different responses to this. Uh, a councillor in North Vancouver uh, saying this should have been done 30 years ago and if there had been the, the foresight then. Uh, but also questions about how the infrastructure then, is there is there the formula in place to make sure that by lowering the fees that these projects will still be able to go ahead? Oh, absolutely. And that's, again, where we used our professional staff. They gave us the recommendations how we could adjust the timelines. Uh, without, and we did a medium, low, and high risk. Of course, the high risk, we had to go ahead. Uh, we have a number of projects that are so essential to continuing our services. We have a lot of aging infrastructure that cities do like Delta, and we have to move in that direction. But overall, uh, with the DCCs and getting away from subsidizing through the homeowners' utility bills, that's the positive for me, and we have to keep going in that direction. Is it dependent as well on a certain level of growth in the region with the forecast of more residents being coming to Metro Vancouver? And I think the number was something like a million more people in this region in the next 15, 17 years. Is it dependent on that population growth? So if there are lower fees, there is still the revenue coming in? Uh, the fees can be lower, but again, it's going to be the new growth paying for the extension of Metro Vancouver services and not having an assist factor where we're paying 
through the existing utility bill people, uh, the existing homes and businesses that already have our services, having them subsidize new growth up to 50% right now. And that's just un- unfair. It's unfair to the homeowner uh, insofar as the rising utility bills when they're getting charged for developers to come in, extend their, you know, build their projects, build the high rises, build the shopping centers, and existing utility uh, utility users in Delta, Delta and other cities are paying for that. Uh, it just is not fair. And this is a better way of doing business, ensuring that growth pays for growth. And so, is there any any um, dependence then, or or does this also look at financial support from the, the other levels of government, as far as provincial or federal government uh, subsidies or, or payments, or or is it all completely on the the, the developers and, and and new growth paying for it? No, that's a good question. Uh, we absolutely it's essential that we continue to advocate for the provincial and the federal governments to sponsor and assist us on our major projects. Uh, Iona Island, for example, we've just, uh, Metro Vancouver has put aside $250 million to start the process of, of putting a new sewage treatment plant in, replacing the old the old Iona Island one. And uh, the province just put in $250 million, and we're traveling back on Saturday morning with a group of mayors to see the ministers there on a number of subjects, but it's also for us to ask for their one-third share of $250 million to start that process for Iona sewage treatment plant off. The end game, insofar as I call it, insofar as what that final number is, it looks like it's going to be about $9 billion. And we can't do that just through new growth. We have to have that federal and provincial support. After all, it's their regulations that are requiring us to update our sewage treatment plans. Right, and that, that kind of goes, I was going to ask you about that as far as different projects, whether it is uh, a water treatment plant, a sewage treatment plant, uh, I, I mean, with the growth in the region, uh, what if a new reservoir is needed? If we're talking about those really big projects, how do those fit in? Oh, you're absolutely right. So the, uh, you know, we need assistance from the governments. Uh, we are going to need an additional water supply in the next number of years. So we're looking at the Coquitlam Reservoir uh, potential for that. Uh, there's a number of issues that we're doing. Our growth is expanding in the region, and we have to have services to accommodate that, but it can't all be on the existing homeowner's utility bill. And that's that's what we want to ensure that we're making it more fair insofar as who's paying for growth uh, in, in our region. And was part of this, was there a push to do this as well, given that there are so many people in Metro Vancouver, obviously depending on where you're living, but there are a lot of residents that are already looking at double-digit property tax increases that this would have been a huge blow? Uh, Unfortunately, there is a number of cities that had to raise their taxes that much. In Delta, we're at 4.9%. We're at one of the lowest. Um, But, you know, it's, it's tough times right now, so we have to ensure there's equity and fairness in how we get uh, these big projects and extending our metro services, uh, how we get those concluded without impacting again and again on the existing homeowner. Uh, so that's that was the uh, principle that we went through on this task force, and again, I'm very, very pleased with the support that Metro provided. We now need to move into the next phase uh, before these are finally adopted in October on doing consultation with the development industry and our staff are working on that and preparing reports back to the board with regards to economic analysis, et cetera. So all those questions you just asked, uh, we're looking at those for a report back in the fall from our staff. All right. Uh, We will follow up, uh, I'm sure, when we uh, get more information and this moves forward. Uh, George Harvey, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much for making some time and for coming on the show. Anytime. Thanks for the interest. Take care.
All right, we are now talking about piloting a pedestrian scramble crossing trial in Vancouver. So what exactly is a scramble crossing and what might this look like? Well, joining us is one of the city councillors who put this motion forward. Peter Meisner is here now. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I know we have one crossing that's kind of like this, but what specifically is this uh, recommendation for? Yeah, so I think you're referring to the crossing at uh, Hornby and Robson. Yes, that's an all. Yeah, that's an all walk crossing. So that uh, that has uh, all the signals come on at the same time, so pedestrians can use the crosswalks uh, all at the same time. This is a little bit different. This is going to be what's called a scramble crossing. So this is like what you would see in Tokyo or London or actually even Steveston. But it's going to allow people to cross in all directions. So uh, the one at the art gallery right now that you uh, know about is just a three-way intersection. So this would be at a four-way intersection. And you'll actually be able to cross diagonally across the intersection. Uh, and the idea of doing this is to make it more pedestrian-friendly for people and also add some of that you know, uh, big city energy in our downtown where there's lots of pedestrians. All right. So where would this go? Or have you cho- chosen a site? We haven't chosen a site. Uh, this is what the motion uh, from Councillor Joe and I will do is direct staff to identify what sites would be appropriate. So obviously there's traffic considerations that need to be taken uh, into consideration as well as pedestrian safety. But I anticipate that it'll be downtown. It needs to be in an area where there's uh, high pedestrian volume. Right. Okay. Uh, is, is this one of the issues? Do you hear from people a lot that, that it is just too tedious to have to cross the street one way and then cross it the other way? You know, I wish those were the only issues we had in Vancouver that we would hear about. But I mean, it's definitely not, you know, a top priority. But I think it's something that we can do to increase the walkability and livability of our city. And it's relatively easy to do. And frankly, Edmonton's doing this. Uh, you see this all over the world. And our downtown is busy with pedestrians. So it's kind of a simple, neat thing that we can do to, to make walking around a little bit more enjoyable. But yeah, no, we have definitely more <laughs> pressing issues in Vancouver. All right. And we're working on those too. <laughs> um, and, and so what is the, the benefit? Is it that it, it is more accessible or, or what is a time saver? What is the benefit of doing this? Yeah, it's definitely faster if you think you had to, you know, cross the street to get to the other side. And then the other side, you'd have to cross twice, right? So you'd have to cross, you know, say on the south side and then the west side, for example. This will allow you to cut diagonally across the intersection. So think about, uh, say, uh, Granville and Robson Street, for example. Instead of having to do two different crossings uh, to get to the other side, you could just cross right across the intersection diagonally. So it's a time saver, and it's also safer for pedestrians as well. Uh, You're not worried so much about people making, say, right-hand turns, for example, when you're in the crosswalk, because the whole thing will be essentially a crosswalk when the signal is on. Right, okay. So faster than for pedestrians and people maybe that that are accessing or going across the street. What about for drivers, though? It sounds like this is not going to be faster for drivers. It may not be faster for drivers, and I think that's why we have to carefully consider where we're going to put this. But it is also going to just be one uh, walk signal as opposed to two separate ones, say for north and south and east and west. Those would be two separate walk signals as the light changes. This will just be one walk signal for everybody so it might actually equal out to be about the same but this is really about putting pedestrians first in areas where there's high pedestrian traffic we're not going to do this on a super busy street like kingsway or you know east first avenue or something like that this is going to be in an area where there's a predominantly pedestrian so that's why i envision it being downtown 
Okay. Uh, you mentioned, too, uh, with uh, somebody maybe turning right and, and wouldn't have to, a pedestrian wouldn't have to worry about that and making sure that the, the driver sees them. I think uh, we've probably all been in that scenario at some point. Yeah. Uh, but so how much kind of driver education do you think needs to go into this? Or Because it is a big change in, in behavior and behaviors that, that many people have been doing for, for many, many years. How do you kind of make sure everybody knows how these work? Yeah, I think we have to have really clear signage. We need to have uh, paint on the on the road for sure in terms of that uh, those diagonal lines to to make it very obvious that this is not your typical intersection. But we have seen this implemented in different jurisdictions, and I mentioned in Steveston, there's one. Of course, there's not as much traffic in Steveston, but you know it is in the region. Um, Edmonton is piloting two of these right now, and then in Toronto we have it at uh, Young and Dun- Dundas. So I think drivers can, you know, figure out how to do this with the proper signage and, and paint, much like roundabouts. When we first got roundabouts and people thought, oh, it's going to be quite confusing. People can figure it out um, as long as we have the appropriate signage, paint, lighting, et cetera. Right. Although I, I still see some wild things at the few roundabouts <laughs> that we have in and around the city. Um, we mentioned the, the Hornby and Robson all walk. Uh, yeah. One uh, that one. For, uh, looking at your motion, it says that that the scramble was considered for that one, but but went with the all walk instead. Do you know why that was? I don't know offhand. I wonder if it's because of the closure of that block for the plaza. But uh, I guess you could still do a scramble. I, I unfortunately I don't know the sure. details of why that was uh, that was uh, not uh, made into a scramble, but. Uh, you know, the scramble idea is is taking it to the next level, really. So it's going to be diagonal. It's going to be, um, you know, a bigger intersection for pedestrians. Uh, people, uh, and again, anybody that, that spends any time walking around, you will see this all the time. And it infuriates me as a pedestrian and as a driver uh, that people will go when there's three seconds left on yeah. the countdown. What happens in a scenario like this if the scramble is coming to an end and there's still people everywhere? Yeah, I mean, traffic would need to stop, obviously. I mean, we don't want anyone mowing anybody down, but uh, I I hear you. I'm a pedestrian. I live downtown. I walk all over the place, and I get frustrated as well. Um, Not so much, uh, you know, more if someone's trying to run me over, but, uh, you know, because I have uh, maybe cut it a little bit too close. So, I mean, the rule of thumb is is that once that stop uh, uh, hand sign starts flashing, you know, don't get into the intersection as a pedestrian if you haven't already. But I understand, you know, there's lots of pedestrians downtown, uh, and uh, sometimes we can't all, you know, make that walk signal. So just would encourage people not to be in that crosswalk at the last second or two. Right. I think it's yeah. actually a, a law, isn't it? It's, it's more than a rule of thumb. You're really not supposed to step off that curb when the countdown has started. That's right. You're not supposed to. Uh, I know that's, you know, not possible all the time. And also, you know, the onus is also on obviously drivers um, to be careful as well. So, you know, pedestrians need to be careful and drivers especially need to be careful that there's pedestrians in the intersection. But I get the frustration. That's a driver, bigger driver education piece. I think that's, uh, you know, Ministry of Transportation, ICBC and the city can work on. But I uh, totally hear the frustration and uh, feel it myself. Uh, so if this goes ahead, then what kind of a timeline are you thinking as far as establishing the first scramble intersection in Vancouver? Yeah, so it would uh, probably hear back from staff in a couple months uh, on where would be an appropriate location. I don't anticipate that we'd be able to set it up this year. 
uh, again, we want to make sure that we're doing this properly with the right lighting, uh, the right paint on, on, the, on the road and signage. So I would anticipate uh, sometime next summer. I think that would be ideal. But certainly we want to, you know, take our time with this and ensure we're doing the right, uh, you know, engineering studies, transportation studies. So, you know, it's a benefit and not, uh, you know, a problem when it's finally implemented. Uh, with the doing studies and signage and what would need to be done for this, do you have a cost idea or uh, an estimate on what this might cost? I don't have that information now, but the staff report that we'll get back is going to is going to give us that information, and, and we'll be able to go from there. But uh, certainly, the city has a, a large uh, budget for transportation. I don't anticipate that this would be a special project or something that couldn't be accommodated within the current budget. And you mentioned as well uh, the one in Steveston and in some other cities. I guess would that be part of it if the, the staff report coming back is looking at, at what other cities have done, uh, what worked and what didn't work? Yes, definitely. I've been to the uh, Shibuya, Shibuya crossing in Tokyo myself. I mean, this is a completely different situation. That's There's probably 10,000 people uh, crossing there, uh, you know, every hour. But uh, we will be looking at best practices from around the world and looking to uh, implement some of those uh, here in Vancouver. They'll all be part of the staff report. All right. Uh, we will look forward to uh, seeing that report and more details on this. Peter, thanks so much for joining us to talk a bit more about it. My pleasure. Thanks, Jill. Well, as you know, more than 150,000 public sector workers, government workers with the federal government are currently on strike. It is day two of that strike. And we also have a bit of a better idea, the gap when it comes to compensation of government workers compared to private sector workers. Ben Eisen is a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute, also the co-author of a new study taking a look at this. And he joins me now. Ben, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I know you've looked at this before and even more timely now, given the fact that federal government workers are walking the picket lines. But tell me a little bit more about some of the conclusions. This was uh, comparing uh, government and private sector compensation. And what did you find? Yeah, comparing government and private sector uh, compensation uh, isn't a straightforward exercise because there's a lot of differences between the jobs and the two. Uh, and so you can't just say what's the average in one and compare it to the average in the other. What you have to do is make adjustments for the level of education, the number of years on the job, uh, all sorts of things like that that are observable things that affect uh, compensation. So what our study does is it tries to, it, it uses statistical methods to remove those processes and sees what's left. See, what's the pay premium that people in the government sector are earning compared to very similar private sector workers? So it's an apples to apples comparison. Uh, and the results are striking. Uh, people in the government sector work uh, earn about 8.5% more for similar work than their private sector counterparts and have a host of other non-wage benefits that are more robust than what people in the private sector are earning. So our, our results are quite clear that the overall compensation and wages uh, are superior in the government sector and that we really are paying a premium as taxpayers for those services. And when you looked at this, are you looking at all levels of government? That's what the study is, yes. This is across Canada, federal provincial, municipal, we look at people who are in the government sector and compare them to people in the private sector. So there would be different premiums at different levels of government, and we don't get into that in our study. It's a broader 
public versus private sector comparison, but that's what the study does, is it takes the full suite of government workers and compares them to the entirety of the private sector workforce. And when you talk about the other things that come into play here, so 8.5% government employees seeing that percentage of higher wages. When we look at things, because certainly the pension plan for government workers is a very good one, how does that play in as far as adding to the all-around compensation package? It's a, it's a huge factor. There's much more likely in the government sector to have a um, to have an employer-sponsored plan. Uh, it's more likely to provide a guaranteed income rather than be based on contributions and interest and uh, and investment returns. Uh, and then there's other factors on top of that. Uh, government sector workers, on average, retire two and a half years earlier, and so begin receiving that pension two and a half years earlier than people in the private sector and anyone. Uh, approaching the retirement age will tell you that two and a half years uh, is not a small chunk of time. That's a much, much earlier retirement. Uh, so the, the, the type of pension received, the frequency of coverage by pension, and how early you start to get it, all advantage for the government sector atop that wage, incre- that wage premium that we discussed. And what about leave during uh, their times, not so much early retirement, but even time off, whether it's sick time or personal leave and the differences there? Yeah, well, we compared um, the number of personal days taken off over the course of the year for the average uh, government worker compared to the uh, comparable private sector worker, and it's a big gap. Uh, It's five additional days a year, about 14 to about nine. That's an entire work week. So there's an 8.5% page pay premium. There's these other advantages that we've talked about. Also, there's a week less in the office uh, with five additional personal days uh, per year. So you start adding these things up. And you begin to see a picture of a wage of a overall compensation uh, and benefit situation that that actually makes the 8.5 percent wage premium seem like the tip of the iceberg. And this is uh, something I know that you have done or that's been looked at yearly. Has there been a shift? Because it wasn't that long ago that it was the the argument was made that because of all of those things, earlier retirement, pensions, job security, because of those benefits, that's why government jobs, generally speaking, the salary might be a bit lower. Have you seen a shift that that's really not the case anymore? Yeah, well... well we we have been doing it for a little while. Um, certainly for as long as we've been doing it, uh, eight years or so. I think approximately the first time we used this methodology in this report, we've seen steady results of a, a wage premium uh, for government sector workers over the private sector over that period. If you go back further in time, then perhaps uh, we don't have the research uh, using our approach uh, to say whether or not um, there was a paper whether it worked the other way before. And that trade-off you described exists. It's certainly a right. It's a way that people have thought about these things over time. Uh, what we knew to, do know is that if it ever did exist, it doesn't anymore. What does it tell us, though? Uh, and again, we know that there's a strike right now with federal government workers. What does it tell us, do you think, as far as uh, compensation and, and what uh, what we're seeing? Well, what it tells us is that taxpayers um, need, need to have representation, that we need to be considering the well-being of taxpayers, and we need to be careful stewarding government uh, money. It's the job of governments to provide public services uh, that people do, that people require uh, while acting as the advocates of the taxpayers in getting the best deal that they can. Now, look, the government has to be competitive with private sector workers. That's for sure. We need to be able to attract high-quality people, and that means fair uh, competitive compensation. None of this is to say that we uh, we can just slash and burn on government sector wages and there will be no no negative consequences. We need to be competitive, but we don't need to pay a premium. And if we are paying 
more than our competitive rates than, than the private sector for similar workers, then what we're doing is we're taking money that could be used for other purposes that could be either providing tax relief or different kinds of public services, all the other inputs into public services, and, uh, and they're going into the uh, inflated wage bill uh, for government sector workers. So I, I would hope that that's the takeaway, uh, that governments recognize that this might be uh, an important area to look for savings, particularly uh, given that at provincial levels, government salaries constitute about half of all, all government spending. So any government that's serious about uh, reining in costs, uh, promoting fiscal sustainability, even reducing taxes, which you don't hear as much about but we'd like to, um, needs to take a look at this area of expenditure. All right. Ben Eisen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for talking about this today. Thank you for having me. All right. If you have a pet, have you identified? Does your pet have ID? Would you know what to do if your pet went missing? Well, Eileen Drever is joining us now, Senior Officer of Protection and Stakeholder Relations at the BC SBCA. Eileen, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank well, we're, you. We're talking about this because it is, uh, people may not have known, it is National Pet ID Week and a good idea to go over some of the, the things that people do need to know uh, if this happens. But before we get to, to that, if your pet unfortunately disappears, when we're talking about ID, are you talking about things like a, a name tag on the pet or a, a microchip? What are we looking at there? Well, there's many forms of identification. Microchips are awesome. Tattoos are amazing and licensees, actually most municipalities require a dog to be licensed. But um, you know, these are important pieces of identification. And the fact of the matter is when, if you lose an animal and it's not wearing a tag, people don't realize they can look in the ears to check for a tattoo or, and they're not aware they have a microchip. So if you come across an animal that's lost, you can take it to either a local animal center, um, a, a pound, or the veterinarian, and they can scan the dog or cat for the microchip. Ideally, you would have your identification registered with the BC Pet Registry, and that could be you, you can register your microchip tattoo license, and you have your updated information, your name and phone number, along with an emergency contact information as well. Right. And would that be in addition to then, uh, like you said, most places, uh, w- whether people do it or not, but most, most places do require the license if we're talking about a dog. And, and most owners, I think, do put the, the name tag on a dog's collar and, and a lot of times your home phone, your cell number, your, your phone number, your contact information. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Um, again, this can always fall off. Right. So that's why, you know, I really think microchips are the way to go um, or, or a tattoo. And it's so, it's so traumatic for an animal to be lost. Can you imagine somebody that's spoiled and is used to sitting on the couch with his mom or dad and, or, and going into bed and, and then they're left wandering the streets in the middle of the night? I can't imagine what they go through. There's so many different smells and their senses. It's just it's, it's horrible to think of your, your family member being out there lost. Um, I experienced it for, it was only 15 minutes, but fortunately I found them. But it's a horrible feeling knowing you can't, it, you, you have no idea where they are. Mm-hmm. So another thing I would suggest to your listeners is look in the area or, or wherever you used, you're used to walking your dog, take a stroll out there, look for your dog, speak to 
passerby, speak to joggers, speak to neighbors, um, garbage collectors, mail carriers, anybody, and and then try the power of scent. You can place a recently worn piece of clothing or one of your pet's pet's favorite toys outside. They have a keen sense of smell, and familiar smells can bring them home. Uh, we would also encourage you to put up a poster, um, and social media is the way to go. That's how I found my dog in 15 minutes. I was I was freaking out. I can only imagine, and and honestly, if 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 you can can lose your dog, I think it means mm-hmm. anybody could uh, could uh, go through uh, this. Absolutely, absolutely, and it only takes a minute. And unfortunately, during Halloween, that's a really rough time for animals. They're terrified, they're scared. You're opening the door constantly to trick or treaters, and they escape. And that could be, you know, if you have visitors coming, your 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 dog or your cat can escape through the door. Only takes a second, and they're gone. And and is it also something that people might think, oh, my dogs never run away or this has never happened, uh, so I don't have to worry about mm-hmm. it. But like you said, then something could happen that spooks the animal or something that, that or maybe Ab- if it's being a, a pet sat by somebody, that, that it could happen to anyone. Absolutely. Yes, and if you do have a pet minder, um, they're not that used to them and they'll be looking for their mom or their dad. So, so really, it... It's not worth it. I used to think, I'll never lose my dog. Well, there you go. 15 and minutes. <laughs> what, happen- what happened in that scenario? How did that happen? Well, I posted on Facebook if anybody in the area was, uh, I was out of town, and if anybody in the area noticed this dog, and lo and behold, someone, um, it was a, uh, a local board, and someone found, found him. And he, he really wasn't even grateful when I got him back. I don't understand <laughs> <laughs> wow, the nerve, the nerve. Yeah. <laughs> he was out exploring. So, as I say, it can happen to anybody, and we just want to protect them. So, update your information with your microchip, register them with the um, BC Pet Registry, and I, you can also check with local veterinarians, or um, you can even check with um, the, the dog pound, as I said, the animal control facilities, and check in local shops. Just keep looking and don't give up. We've seen animals returned after quite a lengthy period back to their owners through microchips. Right, and also the um, when you talk about that as well, the the leaving things out for the scent, and and we've we've covered stories like that, of course, when when animals have been gone for quite some time, and they mm-hmm. have come back home, which is always such a a great thing when we hear that. Uh, I often see people posting on you know the next door app or these community and neighborhood apps mm-hmm. when they've seen an animal, saying, "Oh, I just saw a dog at this intersection," or "This cat." Is that helpful as well, or should they be taking these other steps absolutely that's helpful too uh, and as i say that's how i recovered my dog right. um by posting it on the local app um so it's you know the, make posters take a photo take a photograph put uh make a poster up and um and actually even go to the bcspca pet search and you can include a photo and you can you can design your own poster and make duplicates of them and post them everywhere it's, you know, it's really amazing. I, I live in the White Rock area, and I often see dogs. Someone's taken a photograph of a dog that's, that's wandering, and within a short period of time, they've been returned to the owner. 
Hmm. And uh, the numbers are, are higher than I thought uh, they would have been with uh, the, the SBCA, your lost uh, dogs numbers, that there were more than 1,800 cases last year and already in the first three months of this year, more than 450. That seems high. It does. It does. And I, I have no idea why. I have no idea why. And and we, we need we need to just be a wee bit more aware. Um, and, and hopefully, if if your dog goes missing, please, even in the evening, contact the emergency veterinarian hospitals because quite often a member of the public may, a good Samaritan may drop them off there. So, and then the following morning, start checking with, as I say, the animal control facilities, uh, our facilities, veterinarians, um, and, and also you can use the uh, Craigslist or Missing Pets in BC and Pet, Ser- Pet Searchers in Canada. Um, they're a pet detective and a tracking service. So there, there are many outlets for us to use. Right. And I, Aline, I wanted to ask you too, and, and hopefully this doesn't happen too often, but unfortunately we have also covered stories of pets being stolen. What if you think your pet has been stolen? Right. So if you think your animal has been stolen and you have evidence that leads you to believe that, contact the local police on their non-emergency line. Um, permanent identification such as tattoos or microchips can help the authorities track your animal. And, and I've seen in, in my career a number of animals which have been stolen have been returned to the rightful owner. And, and are those things helpful in that scenario too? Like you said, the tattoos or microchips. I mean, obviously you have to find yeah. the animal and be able to track it down. But I guess mm-hmm. absolutely saying, yes, this is my animal. Yes. Don't rely just on tags because they, they can easily, easily, the tag and the collar can easily be removed. So um, again, I keep pushing this, microchips are the way to go or a tattoo. All right. And maybe a seasonal reminder as well. I know it's raining out and cold out right now, but we we do have some sunshine and some warm weather uh, in the, the future in the next few days. And whenever it gets a bit warmer, well, in this kind of weather, too, uh, we see animals often tied up outside of shops and things when people go in, which I'm guessing is probably a perfect scenario for thieves. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's no way... I would leave my dog tethered up outside um, for fear of the dog being stolen. Um, don't, you know, if you're going to be away for any length of time, even in the warm weather, it's not that warm yet, but when the sun is out, it can get awfully warm in your car. And uh, I, I've seen occasions where people have broken in and stolen the vehicle, uh, stolen the, the dog out of the vehicle. So leave them at home. It's probably best and safer for them. All right. It is a good and timely advice as this being National Pet ID Week. Eileen, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. And did you say we're in for warm weather? I, there, you know what? It's not right around the corner, but if we look ahead <laughs> okay. to next weekend, like not this weekend, but if we can get through this weekend, which is going to be gross, and into next week, <laughs> it goes up to about 18, 20 degrees. So, yes. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to it then. Thank <laughs> you.